Hi, I'm Mel Todd Wood. At CD Media, we've decided never to have a paywall on any of our sites. I hate those. But we have to make money, so we do have advertisements. But some people don't like ads. So what can you do? You can sign up for our no-ad subscription. It's a few bucks a month. You go to the top of any of our sites and sign up for the subscription, and you get access to all of our websites, all of the news from around the world. This includes our Eastern European, Israeli, Balkan sites. It includes armedforces.press. It includes all the U.S. papers that we've opened, the Miami Independent, the Connecticut Sentinel, the Georgia Record, the Manhattan.press, and the, those that are yet to come in the pipeline, which will be opening soon. So you get all this access to fantastic... So first of all, welcome everyone. Uh, today on our Global Conversations show in plain sight, we have again with us Dr. Merle Nass, who lives here in the United States, who is a doctor, a friend, a contributor to uh, us on our show and on our networks across the world. And we've asked, uh, first, first of all, Merle, thank you for doing this and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. And the reason why I've asked uh, Dr. Nass to come on the show is because we're seeing all over the world, from England to Australia to the United States to California, where uh, Governor Gavin Newsom just signed a piece of legislation telling doctors that they are prohibited from having a, a really honest conversation with their patients, which denies them informed consent. And what we're seeing is laws being passed in countries and in territories and in states that prohibit doctors from, in fact, practicing medicine. So, Merle, let's start with give the audience a little bit of your background, because you are a product of this culture as a doctor being attacked by the medical boards who are now basically the quote unquote police going after doctors. It's not just the legislation that's being passed in California, but it's also the medical boards that have been in motion, you know, for quite some time. But yours is your attack and challenge to you as a physician is recent. And I want people to understand your background. And then we're going to get into what exactly happened to you, because this is a this is a pattern now that is going to be, we expect it to be played out, not just in Western civilization, Europe, the United States, Canada, Australia, but it's going to be played out all over the world if if the global cabal gets their way. Okay, so I'm an internal medicine doctor. I uh, was licensed in 1980, so 42 years practicing medicine, and I've done all aspects of internal medicine. And on top of that, I became interested in anthrax, the disease, and then anthrax, the vaccine, before everybody else. So I was, I showed that the first epidemic, uh, biggest, world's largest epidemic of anthrax, which occurred in Rhodesia during its civil war, was due to biological warfare. And then I worked with a number of people in the military to try to stop the anthrax vaccine program. I wrote the first review article on anthrax vaccines. And that was, pardon me for interrupting, but that was in the uh, 1990s, correct? Yeah, exactly. So um, my work on the anthrax vaccine started in uh, 1998. And uh, as and I also worked on Gulf War syndrome and I worked on some other epidemics. Um, and I've testified for six different congressional committees um, in the House and Senate, and I've tested to a number of, testified to a number of state legislatures on various things, but primarily over the last 10 years, the safety of vaccines and vaccine mandates. And um, I've been very outspoken about this subject because I'm 
very, you know, I'm very knowledgeable, uh, you know, having written artic many articles, you know, spoken at many conferences, et cetera, and as well as before Congress. And so I am unfortunately knowledgeable about what the FDA and CDC procedures are supposed to be and how they haven't been performed correctly and how we're stuck with this ridiculous situation now where um, drugs that were helpful for COVID were suppressed um, in many different ways. And I wrote an article about that back in 2020. I've got, I think, 26 or 27 different ways hydroxychloroquine was suppressed, not only in the US, but around the world. And um, I've also written about the suppression of ivermectin. There are other drugs. There are over 60 drugs that the NIH itself in 2014 showed were effective against one or more coronaviruses in vitro. So um, what happened is in 2002 and 2003, there was an epidemic of SARS-1 mm -hmm. and it, but it, there were only a total of 8,000 known cases and there were about 800 deaths. And as a result of that, 10% mortality rate, which is very high, um, all, all the countries in the world that were able mounted some sort of response to it and tried to find drugs and vaccines and ways of dealing with it if it came back. And so we were intellectually prepared. This, both the CDC and the NIH had published studies looking for drugs that would kill coronaviruses if they can, like SARS-1. And they tested these drugs against SARS-1 and against MERS, which is Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which is very similar to SARS, but it kills 30 or did kill 30% of people in Saudi Arabia, in the Arabian Peninsula. So um, anyway, our federal agencies knew about how to deal with COVID when it came back and they didn't. In fact, they tried, they did their best to suppress the knowledge, went after doctors, went after pharmacists who gave out these drugs, the Chinese were using chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine as early as February, they were telling the world, February 2020. They were telling the world this was their best drug for the disease. And instead we, have, we were told to go home and wait until our lips turn blue and then go to the ER um, where we could get remdesivir, which probably doesn't work and causes a lot of episodes of kidney failure. And uh, then by December, they rushed out this vaccine very quickly without adequate testing. And now with every booster and every younger age group that it has been rolled out for, there's been less and less testing. So that for the double uh, new booster, it's called a bivalent booster because it's a mixture of mRNA, including the original Wuhan strain and mRNA coding for a, an Omicron BA5 strain. That is the newest thing. It was just rolled out on September 1st in the United States and Canada and Europe and the, uh, the UK within a couple of weeks. Um, anyway, this, this booster for the US had no testing whatsoever in humans. So th this is against the law. You can't roll out things with no human testing. Um, there are requirements for emergency use authorizations, which are not licensed vaccines and drugs, um, you have to show that there's reason to believe the benefits are going to be greater than the risks. And nobody has bothered to, to show that. You also have to offer people informed consent of, of a kind. There's a modicum of informed consent. You have to tell people what the side effects are, and you have to offer them the option to refuse. That was not done either. That is illegal. That is breaking the law on emergency use authorizations, which these new boosters are. All, all boosters for adults in the United States are under emergency use authorization. And all, right. all the vaccines for kids under 12 are as well. All right. So I want to go back because I think that <clears throat> with your history, a lot of people do not understand that as a result of Gulf One, which is 1990, 1991, and then the... Um, the demand that the military was initially the anthrax was to be given to the military in the theater for golf one. And then in several later years, they wanted to give the anthrax vaccination to us military, which is like 2.3 million. And you participated in some congressional hearings at that time that 
former Congressman Christopher Shays um, led in his subcommittee. You testified before that. And there was a conversation. It was an open debate about whether or not the anthrax vaccination would, you know, what are the risks and the benefits to it at the time? And there was an accepted conversation out in the open, in the, you know, public domain. That was... That, that's where you could have a conversation, was it not? Yes. Exactly. Um, the uh, government reform committee that Chris Shays was part of oversees the FDA and the CDC. And officials from those agencies had to come and testify before the committee um, to explain why the vaccine was being used, how it had been tested, you know, what, what um, assessments the agencies had made regarding all sorts of things, including the quality of the manufacturing. And, and, and that was a, also a rushed job. I mean, that was a very messy vaccine rollout, but it was so much better. It was so much more out in the open than what we have now. It's, it's quite extraordinary. And, and so we're, we're talking about 25 years ago that you could have a conversation where now there's, there's, you're not supposed to have a conversation. You're supposed to listen listen to Fauci and the CEOs of Pfizer, J&J, and Moderna, who's just recently in the game, uh, to accept their word as opposed to review their processes. Right. Um, the Defense Department also had to have generals testifying in those hearings. There were a lot of hearings. Um, Chris Shea's committee held five hearings over a year. They got the GAO, the Gen uh, Government uh, Accountability Office is the new name, mm -hmm. uh, to study this. They went around the world gathering information about the vaccine, which was not only being used in the US, and um, wrote a book about the program and advised that every single person who had received anthrax vaccine should be enrolled in a clinical trial to watch what happened to them because there were so many injuries. And, um, and was that compiled together? Did they follow up with that study at that time? So that that was the report of the committee. So they published basically a book, which was a committee report uh, called Unproven Force Protection. And, lay, and this laid out the committee's opinions about the anthrax vaccine. Now, Congress did not adopt all of the recommendations um, instead, basically what happened was FDA would not shut the plant down in 1997 and would not relicense it. So they allowed all of the vaccine that the government had stockpiled, which was 2 million doses to be used, but they didn't allow any more to be shipped out. You know, that, so that's what the federal government can do. They can stop interstate commerce. They can't stop it from being made, but they can stop it from being shipped. And injected, and consequently, yeah, and consequently injected, um, and the Defense Department was about to shut the whole program down because it really never made any sense in the first place. It, it the vaccine had never been proven to work against inhalation anthrax, and nobody had ever used inhalation anthrax against an army anyway in the history of the world. So there was no real reason to to use it um, except that it was intended to be part of a larger program of many biological warfare vaccines being developed. It would have been a, you know, a huge boondoggle, many, many billions for that the army medical people would have received to develop new vaccines. Anyway. And that, that was all at, that was, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I remember those days, that was at, uh, as a result of people receiving envelopes with anthrax in it following 9-11. Right. So in August of 2001, mm -hmm. Pentagon was getting ready to ditch the anthrax vaccine program. And then the anthrax letters were sent in September and October of 2001. And all of a sudden, Tommy, you know, everything changed. Tommy Thompson, who is the head of the Department of Health and Human Services, so right. we'll get FDA to license this plant and make anthrax vaccine and, and get it out there. And so he said that in October, November of 2001. And 
By January, FDA had licensed the factory and then they started producing again. And the soldiers are still receiving anthrax vaccine today. In the military, nobody's needed it. All right, so, so there's a history here. There's a historical platform of people having discussions about controversial vaccinations. And that's where we are today. We've landed in sort of the belly of the beast uh, having to do with what I call them COVID shots because they're not really vaccines. Having, having traditional vaccines anyways. Having said that, um, you have been outspoken about the COVID shots. And tell us about what happened to you, because I really want the audience to understand that if you have a doctor who's vigilant, who believes in the Hippocratic Oath, who believes in the patient-doctor relationship, who has the experience that you have, and this isn't just about COVID. This is about, and it's not just about you being a physician. It's about somebody who has been engaged in vaccinations, questioning them, testifying before Congress and the Senate here in the United States. You were hammered just recently and challenged by the medical boards in Maine. What happened and why did it happen to you? Okay. What happened was that a stranger in October and a different stranger in November contacted the Maine medical board and told them I was- Which year? Which year? Uh, 2021. Okay. Um, so a year, almost a year ago, um, contacted the medical board and said, Dr. Nass is spreading misinformation that I saw on the internet. And the medical board asked them, what specifically are you referring to? And neither stranger was willing to commit themselves. One actually told the board to Google me. Um, but they both managed to come up with a an, a, a thing that I did on the internet. So one showed them- you say a thing? Is it a video? Okay. So, so one um, informed the board of a video interview I had done. I do a lot of interviews, right. so a video interview. Um, and the other showed them some tweets I, I had sent. And the board came to me and said, we've been told that you're spreading misinformation. How do you want to defend yourself? And I said, and that was, was that what the letter said when you got it? Yes, it, was not yeah, it said, defend yourself. And I wrote to them and I said, first of all, um, what is your um, authority to examine my private life outside the clinic? And apparently, subsequently, they've decided they don't have any authority because they dropped all that. But at the time, they refused to answer me. I said, what is your authority to examine my private life? And um, when it, what, what is your definition of misinformation? They didn't answer that either. And um, I said, what specifically is the misinformation? I said, are you asking me to defend everything I've ever said outside the clinic? And they didn't answer that either. Mm-hmm. So they contacted these two people and tried to get more information from them, but neither one really had any. They never, both of them said they'd never met me and they didn't know any of my patients. Did, were, were they, do, you, do, you know what, do you know at this point in time, Merle, if they are quote unquote paid influencers? Because we know that people on the internet are being paid to push vaccinations. Right. So um, it turns out that when I mentioned the name of one of these people, people that I knew told me that they knew that person and that he was probably a paid informant that he used to hang around, occupy Wall Street and take photographs there. Um, so, so is this just like a internet troller? I mean, he had no medical No, he's a, someone who lives in Maine and physically visited the Maine, Portland, Maine, um, occupy Wall Street demonstrations. Oh, okay. All right. So that was the first two complaints that I said, I have, you know, what am I supposed to defend myself against? You haven't made a specific, <laughs> we don't like your interviews, you know, hello. Um, so they opened a file on me and then apparently, because I, so in, in 41 years practicing medicine before then, there had only ever been one complaint to a medical board. And after it was investigated, um, it was dropped. And the person who made the complaint wrote me a letter apologizing for misunderstanding what it was I had done for his mother mm. and asking me to please take care of his mother again. So that's it. So 
out of the blue with nothing. Uh, there's never ever been a patient complaint besides that one, and which was a son. And out of the blue, the board suddenly became very interested in me. And so in November of last year, I had testified to the pharmacy board begging them to stop threatening pharmacists who were had become afraid to dispense ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And a report of my testimony to that board was sent to the medical board, was sent to the Atter assistant attorney general, the medical board, and, and who wrote back to them saying, we will put it in her complaint file. So they were going around apparently looking for things because why would somebody working for the pharmacy board contact the medical board about a citizen at a public hearing making a statement? And then, so then the, by in December, two patients I had given ivermectin to previously had gone into the hospital. Uh, the ivermectin had not prevented them from going into the hospital. And um, a doctor in the hospital complained that Dr. Nass had given this patient horse paste. She didn't say oh, that. Oh, the, so, the, so the doctor yeah. in the hospital didn't know that right. ivermectin has been approved. Right to give to people throughout Africa for river blindness. To exactly. River blindness. This doctor apparently- So we, had, we have a doctor who is just ignorant. I mean, yes, there is ivermectin for horses. I can say that as an equestrian. And then there, there is ivermectin that is given to people in, in Africa to prevent river blindness. I can say that as somebody who's traveled all over Africa. Right. Okay, and so we have, we have an ignorant doctor making a complaint against you. Right. Okay, so there was three. Then um, I had treated a pregnant woman with hydroxychloroquine for, for acute COVID, which is perfectly legal in Maine, but her midwife decided to if, you know, issue a complaint because hydroxychloroquine is not an approved drug for COVID. So she didn't really know anything either. That she didn't, the patient was perfectly well, the patient recovered well and wrote a very nice um, letter about my, my care. But uh, okay, so that's four. And then the last was a patient of mine needed, had, had been treated, this one who actually wound up in the hospital eventually, had had ivermectin, it hadn't worked, and I was trying to get him some hydroxychloroquine when he got acutely ill with COVID. It had the ivermectin ahead of time. And because the, the medical and pharmacy boards had scared the doctors and pharmacists to not prescribe and not dispense these drugs, um, <clears throat> I, I called in a prescription for him, but I didn't specify the diagnosis. Normally, you never specify the diagnosis on a prescription under the pharmacist's business. But they had been instructed by these boards and by the states uh, to ask, why, why are you giving this ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine? And, and, and didn't that start when there was this pushback against ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine in 2020? because it be, had become quote unquote politicized. And then they decided to basically in, here in the United States, and it happened in Australia too, we know this for a fact, and it happened in other Western civilized countries, hydroxychloroquine and, and um, ivermectin was basically became unavailable to people. Right, exactly. So, and then that's when, that's when they started asking, you know, <clears throat> what do you need this for to the patient? When, when the doctor would call it in, they would want to know why are you prescribing this for it? When in the past, as I understand it, pharmacists would never ask, well, what's the condition? Is it lupus? Is it, you know? Right, COVID? exactly. The, the only time a pharmacist would normally ask you a question is if the patient had an allergy you were unaware of or you were giving an unusual dose or there was a drug interaction. And um, it's, it's never been done before that pharmacists will call you up just to ask the diagnosis, but they were instructed to do that for COVID. They were, and it was, they were instructed in a peculiar way. They were told to, um, you know, be sure that, that if they were dispensing, it was for legitimate uses. And they were warned that basically people could suffer from ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine when used for COVID but that these drugs are perfectly fine for all the other diagnoses. You know, I always thought this was kind of ironic <clears throat> when this started to surface uh, in 2020 and 2021, because we had the opiate 
and I will call it a, you know, a, a pandemic because opiates, the situation with opiate overdoses here in the United States with prescribed drugs wasn't limited just to the United States. And pharmaceutical companies, pharma pharmacists were not asking people about that at the time that, you know, opiates are being overprescribed for patients. But it, it certainly surfaced for the first time, you know, because of the hydroxychloroquine or the ivermectin. I mean, basically, it's a HIPAA violation. Uh, mm -hmm. Pharmacists shouldn't know, but HIPAA rules were suspended for the pandemic. Because of the Emergency Use Act? Well, I don't think there's actually a clear reason why they would be suspended, but a lot of rules were suspended for the, you know, we're working on a set of emergency laws now that are right. different from standard, you know, federal and state laws. And um, these laws were brought into play about 20 years ago. They were initially written by the CDC and then the states adopted versions of them. So CDC paid a guy named Lawrence Augustin, who was a professor at Georgetown and Johns Hopkins in health law, a lawyer, they paid him to draft the legislation and then to bring it to the states and convince them to enact it, which was done. And what was that legislation? How did that legislation read? So it was called the Model Emergency Health Powers Act, and it gave states broad either governors or in some cases, health officers, broad authorities to quarantine, to perform medical examinations on people and, and to take your property even um, in, in the event of a pandemic or medical emergency. So people didn't, you know, people didn't really know that these laws could be used in a situ, you know, and be continued for two and a half years, more than that, in a situation like we have now but we are still in most of the United States working on the basis of these laws, which, um, you know, have nothing to do with due process, you know, just take away a lot of our rights. Uh, and, and, the, and the public doesn't know. And I the mean, public doesn't know. And even the lawmakers don't really know. No, nobody really understands what's going on. But as a result of this, many um, pre-existing laws were suspended and HIPAA was one of them, at least in part. Um, telemedicine rules so that, you know, doctors could see patients over the phone rather than requiring a video connection, you know, or an in-person visit. In insurance companies were instructed to pay for visits over the phone. Anyway, that, that's one of the issues that the board has charged me with is that I was doing phone visits instead of video visits. And the board didn't even know that the governor had, you know, had suspended the rules, the federal rules. Had been suspended. You know, I was allowed to give people phone visits if that's what they wanted. Um, you know, the board is, was not familiar with the law. They've never had a case like mine before in Maine. They uh, initially thought that because FDA said that these drugs were not approved for COVID, that it was not legal to prescribe them when off-label prescribing, you know, in other words, the FDA did not specifically license the drugs for this purpose. Off-label prescribing um, accounts for at least 20% of the prescriptions that are written in the United States. So there's nothing unlawful about that. But the board thought it was, you know, they made a lot of mistakes. Um, so, so, anyway, so, I, I so I gave, I told one pharmacist one time, that this patient who I thought could die of COVID um, had Lyme disease so that he would dispense the hydroxychloroquine and he did. And I immediately then emailed the main board of registration medicine and said, look, I had to lie to a pharmacist because of your whisper campaign threatening doctors and pharmacists that they'll lose their licenses if they dispense or prescribe these drugs. And so I had to lie and you should not put any more doctors in this position. This is not good for patients. This was a life-threatening problem. And the patient actually did wind up in the hospital on a ventilator and thank God he did survive. He, he wound up never using the hydroxychloroquine probably because all of these federal and state agencies had scared him off. So he went and filled the prescription and then he never took it. 
So, so this has moved forward and you had a mountain of complaints at the beginning. Okay. Some of them have been dismissed, but you're now facing a hearing where you have to defend yourself. Let me ask you some basic questions because I want people to understand this. Having interviewed a lot of doctors that have been brought before the medical boards in the past and now currently, how you had to hire a lawyer, correct? Yes. Okay. How much money have you had to lay out the lawyer? So thank you. Thank goodness, Children's Health Defense has helped me. I have paid some of it myself, mm -hmm. um, but we are looking at several hundred thousand dollars at this point. And and this is not unusual from when I have spoken to doctors that have been brought before the medical boards. It can be anywhere from fifty to several hundred thousand dollars, depending upon how much the doctor is marked. Okay, uh, to teach that doctor as an example, for lack of a better word who basically stands up for the patient doctor, privacy, Hippocratic oath, relationship, how to you know administer medicine, and basically working for the patient as opposed for the system. Yeah, well, I mean, I had no choice. I had to take care of patients and I had to do more and more of it, of COVID work, because almost all the other doctors in the States refused to because they were also, you, you know, you take away a doctor's license, you've basically ruined their life. And the board- And in some states, pardon me again for interrupting, but in some states, Merle, as I understand it, if a doctor writes a medical exemption and then a medical board goes after the doctor and <clears throat> concocts some crazy theory and that doctor loses their license, those medical exemptions that the doctors have written prior to the medical boards getting involved, in some instances, or many, or most of those instances, those medical exemptions are canceled, correct? That's correct. They become void. Um, this is another crime that the state is um, performing against the people of the United States, okay? I mean, vaccines are drugs. Vaccines have side effects, just like drugs do. I, you know, I am <laughs> very well aware of this, having dealt with you know, incredible injuries from the and deaths from mm -hmm. the anthrax vaccine. And I'm anyway, I'm familiar with all the vaccines. And some people have already had a reaction to a particular vaccine, can't get any more. Some people have a generalized issue that relates to multiple vaccines that they should not have. And mm -hmm. some people have a family history. You know, if your sister died when she got a certain shot, then maybe you shouldn't have it either because you're going to have very similar genetics as your sister. Right. So there are certain, and every, you know, expert group that has looked at this in the past up until now um, has agreed with this, that there are people who should not get certain vaccines. And they, but now over the last several years, the CDC has tried to impose new rules for this that say everybody should get every vaccine unless you have had an anaphylactic reaction to the same vaccine previously. Um, See, that doesn't make any sense. If you've, if you've had a reaction to a vaccine prior. Yes. And then they're saying that you need to get it again. I mean, that's not, that's not even logical. I mean, no. that, that's like. There that's is like, no literature to support what the CDC is saying. They have pull this out of the air. And um, the goal- That's a, that's a nice way of saying it, Merle. <laughs> that's a nice way of saying it. All right. So they pulled it out of the air. They're imposing this on people. So let's get back to your case. So you had this mountain of accusations. And then over time, when you and your attorneys have challenged the accusations, how many did they how many did they list? You don't have to get into the weeds of it, but how many so, did they list? Uh, I think there were uh, they had a nine page list of allegations at one point, and then eleven pages. Basically, they just had a list of more than twenty things that I had said in these in an interview. You know we, when we when we take a look at lawyers and civil suits sometimes, when we're examining it, you know they'll 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 reach out to the press, they'll file the complaint against someone, they'll throw the kitchen sink at them. Yes. And, when you, and you whittle it down, you weed it out, and you figure out what survives a motion to dismiss. 
And then by the time they go to court, you know, instead of 20 counts, it's three. And I'm talking just civil suits. I mean, this is this is irresponsible attorneys, irresponsible accusations, but they just want people to succumb to the system, intimidate them, cut a deal. They win because somebody's cutting a deal. Um, right. Is that what it felt so, like? Yeah. Um, but the, the other thing they wanted to do was waste a lot of my money or somebody's money. So when you you have to come up with evidence, you know, against every one of these allegations. So um, it's a lot of time, a lot, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and then uh, and these stupid allegations where they didn't even know the law, such as, you know, off label prescribing. Well, that's legal. So they've dropped that. Um, they've dropped all allegations of misinformation. They've dropped everything that I said on the internet or in a tweet is gone. So what the, happened to those two people, those those two viable sources that came forward that said you are this bad doctor whom you never even met, didn't know your background, never treated. Did those accusations fall by the wayside as well? Well, remember, they never made specific ones. They just said misinformation. They, they're gone because they, the, certainly the other side did not want our attorney questioning this guy who's probably a paid informant. Sure. Uh, they, so all of that is gone. Um, also, there is no definition for misinformation. Nobody's been willing to create one. Um, there is no, there's no law against oh, that, no, that, the first amendment. No, no, but Merle, the definition is if you disagree with Fauci, <laughs> the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, you know, Francis Collins has been saying that he believes in God. And at the same time, he's telling, he's working with Fauci when he was still head of NIH, how to suppress information because he didn't like the narrative. You know, right. this is a man that by the end of this game probably is going to wish he did believe in God. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, you, you can't go out there and, and, and hold up your Christianity if you're going to lie to people and play the yeah. game. And suppress the, uh, you know, what are we doing to suppress the uh, Great Barrington Declaration? The Great Barrington, yeah, agreement. Okay. So, or declaration, I should call it. So, so, so what is it whittled down to now? So at the moment, um, they, they're they saying that my records are incomplete, which is, again, because they don't know, they haven't been able to figure out that I gave these two people ivermectin before they were ever sick. As a and prophylactic. So, uh, not even as a prophylactic. I gave it to them to say, I said, look, look what happened to hydroxychloroquine. The government has made that almost impossible to obtain. While you can still obtain ivermectin, let's give it to you now. You hang on to it until you get COVID. We don't know when they're going to do the same thing with ivermectin. And they were already, and so anyway, that, so I gave it to these two people and the government says, well, you didn't do a history and a physical on them. You didn't have a plan of attack for their COVID infection. Well, it's because they didn't have a COVID infection. Um, there are a bunch of text messages and emails that I had between the wife of one patient and the son of an, who were living in the same home and the son, who when they were all sick, was living in the same home with the patient. And um, they're saying I, I, I was a HIPAA violation because I was talking to relatives instead of talking to the patient. Well, that's ridiculous. You always talk to the relatives. Well, um, every, every doctor does. And, and you can talk to even members of a family who don't have the health proxy. Yeah. So um, that that is, you know, bogus. Um they still they still need to come up with something to justify why they summarily suspended me, which only happens to about 200 doctors a year in the whole country. You know, it never happens. They don't summarily suspend you as a, a you know, risk to the whole state, um, especially when I had no prior complaints and never a patient complaint. So they're so, so what is the process? Initially. Do, you no, do you normally get get suspended before you get a hearing? No, normally oh, they didn't even play by those rules. No, they, you want, they, had, you I, they had to make me out to be the devil doctor, you know, as if I had murdered patients. That's the treatment I got. And so my name immediately went to the National Practitioner Database, making it impossible for me to ever get a license or a job anywhere else. Um, and they had to justify that. So they attempted to tell the media, imply that I was either a substance abuser or crazy. And so they ordered an immediate psych evaluation. Well, my lawyers had to file a lawsuit to stop that. 
because under the main statute, it says anytime the board wants to examine a doctor mentally or physically, they can do so with basically no grounds. So that's what they did for me, but I never had it because I filed a lawsuit and that lawsuit is pending the results of the hearings. So anyway, that's where we are. So what are they left with? They're left with, they don't like my notes and I lied to a pharmacist. But of course I was complying with my oath to take care of the patient as my first priority, not to um, not lie, not tell a white lie to a pharmacist that wasn't gonna hurt anybody and might save the patient's life. And I self-reported that lie within moments to the board. So that's what they're left with in their case. And I would think that if they had any brains, they would dismiss the whole thing. But they need to, they need to, you know, put me through as much uh, agony as they can. It's not going to be ag agonizing. I can tell you it'll be fun. Um, but they're going to put me through this on Tuesday and then subsequent days. Um, and they'll try to build a case and the people who are the jury are six members of the board. Unfortunately, the board already voted without letting me speak, without me putting on any case whatsoever. They already voted to immediately suspend me as a danger to the public. So the so same you, people, you, so you, same you people were denied again. So you were denied due process. Yes, I was. And now is that written into the rules of how the, the, the medical board in Maine is to adjudicate this? So they could only do that because I was such a huge immediate threat. You see, that's why they mm -hmm. had to go to the psych exam um, because make you make you out to make you out to be a crazy woman in, in Maine who's been practicing medicine for over forty years. Correct. All right. So now I want to get into the weeds. These people that sit on the board. This is your jury of six. Who are these people? Because in some states, and it changes to different states. The people who are appointed to the medical boards are usually appointed by the governor or somebody under the governor, but it's sort of a political favor yeah. to somebody in the state legislature who likes pharmaceuticals. Let's just put it out there. Right. Do, do you know any of these people in Maine? Maine's not a well-populated state. Yeah. No, I did not know any of them. Um, the, do they have any medical background? Yeah. Most of them were doctors and um, a few, two were um physician assistants and three members who voted, you know, on my case were lay people. I don't think they really knew anything about me. They basically, the board staff had prepared a case. They were given a load of hogwash about me. They, you know, they, they were never told that I'd published a paper. They were never told I testified before Congress. They were not told that I had no prior complaints. They weren't told anything. They were just told this horrible person is, spreading terrible misinformation and trying to attack attention to herself and she needs a psych exam and we need to immediately suspend her. And so they said, okay. Everybody was willing to destroy my career. And then the next day, the board, the executive director of the board put out all this information to the media and I got national coverage, you know, on the Associated Press um, the Hill, Newsweek, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Miami Herald, you know, everywhere. And in Maine, the Maine, the number one newspaper, the Portland Press Herald, even wrote an editorial about how important it was to revoke my license. <laughs> so my reputation was destroyed. And of course, for a physician, reputation is everything. Sure it is. So these people um, got pleasure um, destroying me. And trying to make it as, as public an execution as possible. Um, and now I will finally get my day in court on Tuesday, uh, starting at one o'clock Eastern time and Children's Health Defense will be live streaming it. And anyone who wants to watch and see what, what is really going on in this case, um, you know, I came to realize after I went through the process that I was a poster child, that it wasn't really about me at all. It was about creating a boogeyman that could scare the rest of the doctors in the United States. And that was that well, that's, was that's that's what people do when they are oppressors. They want to use somebody who is an is an example to make it Friday, you know, Easter Friday, crucifixion, yeah. scare everybody to death. You're next if you stand up to the system or anything like that. So God bless you for standing up to the system and God bless children's self-defense for helping you do this. 
What have you learned going through this that you would want to share with other doctors? Because we know this is coming. This is, you know, th this is this is the trend. This is the pattern. They're setting the stage. They're laying down the bricks for this. It's not just in this country. It's not just in Maine. You, Gavin Newsom has, you know, he's thrown his hat into the ring by signing that piece of legislation, you know, 10 days ago, two weeks ago, whatever day it was. Uh, and we also know prior to that, that the medical board in California has been on steroids going after doctors. And we also know that some doctors, <clears throat> when they're taken before the boards in one state, and that may still be, you know, up for grabs in terms of deciding what the resolution of that case may be, may move to another state. And then because they're called before the medical boards with no re resolution in one state, another state files a complaint against the doctor based upon what happened in the first state. I mean, the, the, the unfairness of this is like, you're guilty. You don't get a chance. You don't get to process. Then they take it to the, to the, to the media. Did any of the, I'm just interested to know this, having worked in legacy media for decades, did any of the media ever call you? Um, yes, a few uh, local media did. Local. What they, about what, what about the Newsweeks? What what about the national national press? Did any um, of them call McClatchy, you? McClatchy called. They were the only ones. And so, did they print your side of the story? Um, well, it wasn't a particularly favorable piece. No. Um, I did mean, they, did they talk to your attorneys at the time, or did you no, even have attorneys no. at the time? Okay. Um, no, nobody talked to the attorneys at the time. Uh, I think everybody knew they were supposed to write a hit piece, and they did. I mean, if you read as I, you know, as I've laid out the complaints, you can see that none of them are substantive. None of them resulted in any patient harm. The only way anyone could come up with patient harm was to say, "Well, Doctor Nass, by treating these people with ivermectin, delayed them going to the hospital for real treatment." You know. Remdesivir. Well, well, what was the real They were supposed to go for ventilators that were killing. And remdesivir and maybe monoclonal antibodies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, remdesivir is dangerous. Of course. And the monoclonal antibodies are not licensed for anything. So mm -hmm. they're, they're emergency use. I gave these people licensed drugs with a um, decades long, you know, safety history. Two very safe drugs. Um, when used correctly. So, do you, do you think that the that the the when McClatchy called you, do you think that the reporter was just stupid, willful ignorance, or just following a script? I can't or you don't tell. Know. You don't uh, know. I I you know my opinion, having worked you know with media on and off for at least twenty five years, is that all the good reporters are gone from the mainstream media. They Listen, I came back because of this story. <laughs> <laughs> I you mean, know, I think they've been, they told what the narrative needs to be. And if they don't follow it, they will lose their jobs. And nobody needs to say that out loud. They see who's left. You know, they see who, who had to quit or who got fired. Everybody knows what's going on. Well, I uh, couldn't I couldn't cover the story the way I do, except for the fact of Todd Wood uh, and who has given me full license to do what I normally do when I do corruptive, you know, investigations and, and God love them for that. And, you know, CDM media, because it would not be possible for, for me to do what I've done. And I've never had a retracted story in my life, 40 plus years in the business. Do you think that when the, when the, um, the local press called you, that they heard you up? The, interestingly enough, the main public radio reporter had been basically colluding with the executive director of the board Oh no! And really? Had how'd, he, how'd you find that he, out? He had in well because we got we had a FOIA of emails um, that were going back and forth. So there was a FOIA request, and so he had actually notified the executive director of the board that I had spoken to legislators about the suppression of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, and told them that I'd been forced to lie to a pharmacist. So this reporter who had apparently, you know, listened into our Zoom, uh, informed the board that Dr. Nass had lied to a pharmacist. And even though on some of his emails back and forth with the executive director were very formal, they forgot a couple of times and called each other first names. 
So they were on a first name basis working together to get this story out. And Maine Public Radio ran four separate hit pieces on me. Did four. local NPR in Maine cover your story? That's what I'm saying. Local NPR in Maine covered it assiduously. Anytime there was a speck of anything happening, they would tell the story over again in a slightly different way and make sure that everybody in Maine had heard about this horrible doctor who immediately needed to have her license suspended. Do we know if uh, NPR Maine received any uh, money from pharmaceutical companies? That I don't know. Do we know if... Um if any of the hospitals in Maine had given them any money? Because we know that money came down from the federal government to the state government. We know that grants were given to some hospitals and hospitals do support NPR public broadcasting in a lot of states. It's not unusual on, on local levels. I mean, I think don't these agencies get federal money? Then we don't know what those contracts look like. Well, we do. They have in the past. That's true. I mean, uh, PBS does. Uh, then you get the sponsorships from the people that they collect money on donations and, and things like right. that. But Bill Gates, get, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation pays, you know, many millions of dollars. What, $250 million to media companies? Well, that's, you know, that, that has been reported that that's just here in the United States. But we know that the Gates Foundation gives money to foreign media as well. And they have for a number of years. We know that the, uh, what is it, the Trust Initiative uh, gets money, uh, which is a conglomeration of, uh, I think, BBC, Reuters, Google's part of it. Uh, I can't remember if Twitter's part of it, but there's some internet social media groups that are part of that as well that have acted like the police covering the COVID stories, going after disinformation, misinformation. But most of the public doesn't quite understand right. that the, the, the internet, you have to think of the internet and social media a lot like television. And in the 1980s, um, the United States was the first country that ever advertised pharma ads on television. Um, New Zealand did it, then New Zealand stopped. But other countries don't don't advertise, you know, prescription drugs the way we do. Now we advertise, you know, for vaccinations. It, it, and, and I remember in the last year, I, I was on the phone one night. I had 60 minutes on, but it was on mute because I was on the phone. And I watched the, uh, what is the, what is the vaccination? Uh, HPV. That was advertised on 60 Minutes primetime on a Sunday night. And I thought to myself, isn't that interesting? I had never seen that before. And I watched 60 Minutes religiously. I had never seen that. So, you know, we, 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 uh, we have in, we in the media, <laughs> the legacy media, it's not just the advertisements that are there, but it's also the promotion within the, within the media. I mean, the media has been bought. It's broken in the United States. There's no doubt about it in terms of the advertisements for pharmaceuticals. Right. It's active life. And right. And many of the ads are not actually that um, convincing. They don't seem to have necessarily been written to make people rush to their doctor and ask for the pill, but rather they are a way of conveying, they are a delivery system for funds from pharma to the media, um, which says, make your news favorable to us or you will go out of business if we take away our ads. That's one interpretation, but also it gives legitimacy because they always have the disclaimer. You can take this shot, you can take this drug, you might, you know, you might have a stroke, you might, it might cause death, but you know, consult with your doctor ahead of time. I mean, but that's been going, that's been going on for years, but it's just, you know, there's a partnership between the pharma industry, the media, not just for advertisements, but then there's the money behind the scenes as well to push out a message, especially during the COVID, COVID era in the last, you know, two and a half, almost three years now. It's pretty yeah. scary. It's pretty scary. So what's next for you? I mean, are you, are you hopeful that you're going to going to succeed and bring these guys and expose these guys on Tuesday? Well, I, you know, I never did anything wrong. The only thing I did wrong was a white lie to a pharmacist to try to save a life. Um, and thank God that patient who was put on a ventilator, you know, extubated himself, pulled the tube out of his own lungs, 
and uh, made it home. And so he is he is well now. Is he going to uh, stay? Is he is is he standing by you? Oh yes, all the patients. None of the patients had a problem with my care. There so was only the, the so they, don't, they, don't, they don't have, they don't have a patient that's going to come out and say Doctor Merle Nass made a mistake. No, no, there's not a no. They have nothing. <laughs> you see, that's why I'm willing to do. To see what the board did is they looked at me and they said, "Okay, she's 70. Um, she's not going to spend all the money it's going to take to fight this. So we can target her." We can make her the poster child and we're going to win. This is going to be a win-win for us. And, you know, the more notoriety she has, the better because we scare everybody. And so they did not know the mud puddle they were stepping into when they decided to mess with me. And, um, you know, I'm just one of these people who just believes in things have to be done correctly you know, you don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't steal, you take care of every patient as well as you possibly can. And, and you change the rules when the rules are wrong. And so I have to fight this to the last, you know, drop of my blood, really, because these are terrible rules that are killing people. They, you know, a lot of people have died because of misinformation about the vaccines and because these drugs have been withheld. And, and this is a crime. And if they've done it once, they can do it again. I mean, we can have a new pandemic unleashed on us. And, you know, I, I just, I'm not going to stand for this. I'm going to fight this, you know, until I drop dead because it's not acceptable. Merle Nass, you are a joy to have on. Uh, we wish you well on Tuesday. We're going to take your live feed. We're going to put it across our network internationally and domestically here in the United States and nationally. And wish you Godspeed. Seriously. Thank Seriously. you. <laughs> and, and, you know, this is the lesson for all doctors um, who are saying, oh, my gosh, what is going on here? Because you really have to have somebody who's a trailblazer to, to fight back for this. If not, you know, medicine as we knew it is gone because exactly. that, makes, that makes it corporate. Exactly. That makes it corporate medicine, which is not good for anybody on the planet. Christine, I have to actually disagree with you. It's not corporate medicine, it's government medicine, because California okay. has showed us um, doctors in California now it's against the law to tell patients anything about their health that doesn't go along with the government narrative. And but don't you, don't you think it's pharma because pharma captured uh, FDA, CDC, NIH, NIAID, and politicians? Well, the, yes, they were captured. Um, however, I think this is bigger than the pharmaceutical industry alone. I mean, we're looking at a lot of industries. We have the digital IDs. You know, we have the apps on the phone. We have the social credit score. This is, you know, we have the censorship of all the social media and regular mainstream media. Um, so this is not just a hundreds of billion dollar business. This is a trillions of dollars business. The U.S. government admits uh, as of oh, about a week ago that it spent $3.95 trillion on its response to COVID. So this is bigger than the entire, the entire pharmaceutical industry in the world is not that big. Um, what will happen to doctors? And that's what we know. Oh, that's, what the, that's what we know. Well, that's what they admit to spending, right. right? We don't know how much money they printed and actually spent. Just like, you know, when they were bailing us out of the 2008 uh, disaster, they didn't, wouldn't tell us how much they spent. Um, so doctors haven't figured out that once they accede to only telling the government's narrative to patients and only giving them the drugs the government says they can use, you don't need doctors anymore. A computer can do that. And the well, whole that's, that, that, that's, that makes a lot of sense why Gates in the game, because he he's he he's he's a numbers guy, he's an algorithm guy. I mean, statistics. This is collateral damage with the coronavirus hunters and everything like that. The scientists think of, well, you know, these are rare injuries when in fact, no, if, if you're one of those rare injuries, it is an upending of your life for yourself and right. for your family and everybody in your, in your uh, orbit. So yes, it's a commodification of human beings. 
And, you know, I, I look at it through corporate because I, I, I tend to think that it's follow the money. Somebody's paying somebody to get access for people making decisions like this because it's so against humanity that yes. I don't think people would do it consciously without a conscience unless they got a bribe or got some money. I really don't believe that. Anymore. Well, we're threatened. So doctors were threatened with loss of their careers. And they, you know, it, most doctors love their careers. And that, you know, you, even me, I mean, I love my career, but, um, you know, even though I'm old, no, I didn't want to just stop practicing medicine because somebody decided I shouldn't. Um, I wasn't willing to do that. And so doctors will, you know, they've been pushed. They've been told they had to, you know, type up their own notes. They have to, you know, they've been beaten, beaten to a pulp for at least 20 years. And so they have, they can't stand up. They don't know how to stand up for themselves anymore. Well, you're an inspiration for the doctors. They know that this isn't over. You've got to win this case. Godspeed to you. Meryl Nass, thank you. Dr. Nass, come back anytime. And we want to talk to you after this is over again to find out the results of this. And, and we wish you well on Tuesday. Thank you, Christine. Thank you.